HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Russell Bevan. We'll talk to Russell about his wine, vision, and other projects. We'll taste a few of Russell's wines for our weekly wine sip. I'm Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Fifth-generation Sonoman, Russell Bevan, left town to study philosophy at Gonzaga University logically leading him to a job in the dental field in the Midwest. A fortuitous transfer sent him back west where wine things started happening for him. Russell became a prolific wine forum nerd and a columnist for Wine Spectator magazine before settling into his own wine gig in Northern California. Russell is the proprietor of Bevan Cellars and a sought-after wine consultant, Stacking up numerous 100-point wines, he recently started Adversity Cellars with his wife, Heidi. So, the question begs to be asked, how the hell did a native Californian with a master's in philosophy from a Jesuit university wind up in the Midwest in the dental field only to return back west and make some of the highest scoring and most prestigious wines? We'll find out. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Russell. And I am excited to be here, Sam. All right, so let me just state a few things. Today is a first for the Grape Nation, okay? The Grape Nation podcast, we're talking to Russell in my home, okay? I mean, I do a lot of remotes from here, but Russell is sitting right across from me. And we have a live audience of a bunch of our friends, including uh, my wife, Katie, and Russell wife Heidi and Andy and Scott and Lois and Walter. Um, so thank you for joining us in our home and thank you uh, for sharing uh, your wines. 
Well, we're we're excited to be here, Sam. And as somebody who who heard all about you via Howard Stern long, long time ago, it was fabulous to get the invite to come here and and spend a couple hours with you. And uh, this is just the podcast is just the beginning. You know, trust me. I think we're going to be uh, rolling people out of here, but that that's a good thing. All right, so Russell, let's get started. Let's assume people know you and know your wines, but also let's assume there's a lot of people that don't know you. And maybe by knowing you and what you're doing, you know, they'll uh, look for your wines. So give me that little short background on your journey in life and wine that pretty much got you to where we are today, which is Bevan, adversity, consultation, and all of that. And I begged you in the car, don't spend too much time on it, because we'll talk about the details during the uh, the uh, interview. It it It's fairly simple. From a young age, I've had a very intimate relationship with alcohol. I <laughs> I was the oldest male grandson in my family. And I ended up being the bartender when I was a young man for the family. And once we started having family dinners, Thanksgiving or any holiday event at my family's, I would start bringing cocktails out halfway through dinner so I could take the wine bottles off of the table. They disappeared. And then I had wine for the rest of the weekend at my grandparents' house. And I I had access to all the hard booze and alcohol I wanted to. I enjoyed wine from a very young age. And when I was in high school, I... I oh, wait, wait. That's why they sent you to, to military school? That, 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 that could be that one of the reasons I was okay. sent to military okay. school. But... It, it it was never problematic for me. I just really enjoyed it. And in high school, my best friend, Robert, he and I, there was one 7-Eleven who had a fine wine selection. And I, I got to go to public school my senior year and I grew a beard. And Robert and I would drive to the state line and we would buy a great bottle of Cabernet and then a couple lesser bottles, but we would enjoy a great bottle of Cabernet on a Friday and Saturday night when we were seniors in high school. In grad school, I worked for Gallo. Um, I got out of school. I wrote a wine column through the Minneapolis Star Tribune. My whole life, wine has been a huge part of it. And I'm blessed to be one of those few people in the world doing what they were born to do. I mean, I walk beautiful vineyards almost every day when I'm in Napa. I blend wines and, and we sit down with 15 or 20 bottles every night to talk about excellence and what we want to, to craft wines into being. And I'm living my best life. All right, so fill in a few gaps for me. Um, that wine writing thing was just you know following through on a passion in the Midwest. And then Wine Spectator, that's no slouch, well, no opportunity. Uh, it, it, that was purely done freelance. And uh, I submitted a couple articles and they picked up on it. And uh, yeah, it, it was me loving to write. You study philosophy, you learn to love to write. And so I would just sit down and I'd, I'd take copious notes. Every wine I tasted, I would take notes. And, and I'd try to put it in my memory on, oh, if I was making a wine, what would I do to improve this? What what pieces of the puzzle might this not have? Do you have books that you keep of these notes? I, I've got legal pad after legal pad you after did. legal pad. Okay. But it it was all about documenting the the journey and writing it all down. And I, I loved sharing the story. Very cool. That's why this is so fabulous today, Sam. What... um. 
what I don't get is that dental thing. I mean, <laughs> okay, so, I mean, thank God we're talking about wine and you're in wine, but that was kind of a weird detour. It it, it there's this I thing mean, what called what was it first of all? Cash. It okay. was it was <laughs> cash money. Cash. Okay. At some point in time you have to pay for for your pleasures and I was paying for my pleasure a great organization I'm really close to the people I I used to work with but I've never looked back one second and and I was blessed to be there and they supported me the whole way but um was that, that was always I got to get out of here maybe get back west get into the wine thing absolutely was that always burning in you and they accommodated me so after i was there 15 years i said hey i need to go home you were in that field for 15 years i worked for the same company for 20 years Jesus. and um that they were wonderful to me and my were boss you ever employee of the month uh, I had region of the year eight region, years okay. in a row. I was Better. salesman of the year okay. six time. So they, they, they didn't force I don't see as me to do a lot of guy. things. kind of low key, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. So a transfer or an opportunity to go west comes up. Is that, you look at that like, if I can get out west, I could start doing more things that... You, you well, know, but you were from there too. Yeah, my my, I, I told them I had to go west because I needed to be near my family. Okay, both my parents are in Sonoma County. Uh, my one living grandparent was still in Sonoma County. It was about me getting home more than me doing something with wine. I was doing something with wine wherever I was because I was so active in writing. It was such a huge part of my life. But getting back out there. And then once I moved out, Cal and Dorothy Showkit, who have the vineyard that's now owned by Peter Michael, uh, that's next to Dalla Valle and um, up on the eastern Oakville hillside, gave me a ton of grapes. And I had 15 friends come over and we pulled every grape off by hand. And I brought a case of wine and I told everybody, we're going to do this for two hours. Then we're going to drink like fish and celebrate my very first wine. 12 hours later, we're still removing every grape by hand. And we're putting the plump grapes in one bin, slightly yeah. desiccated in another, raisined in a third, and we, we crushed all of them. And then I had them all foot stomped by uh, two of the ladies that, that were there to help us. And two days later, these three lots that came from the same ton of grapes were so completely different. They had virtually nothing in common in in that level of fascination, even though I'd done my Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours multiple times, I lived my life tasting out of barrels, out of bottles, having my own three bins be so diverse, I, I was utterly captivated. Did that and surprise you? Like you didn't even think the diversity would be that, so wide? That level of complication in, in the process and the flavor development absolutely blew me away. But break that down. <clears throat> Excuse me. Break that down for me. Was that three different sites no it was or the same two box two it was it was two and a half boxes of grapes but when you look at the fruit that was on the afternoon side that had oh, some okay. of the dimpling so there were nuances to why there was and that's why we right. took the Which grapes off of the half of a cluster that had sun exposure compared to the other half that didn't and so the sun side the photosynthetic impact of the grapes in the compounds that the sunlight cooks out made the outer grapes so ah. completely different than the inner grapes 
And so you, you had phenolic difference because of the enzymatic activity due to UV penetration through the skins. You had airflow difference on the morning side and the afternoon side. And the, those impacts were so huge. To this day, we sort everything berry by berry. Our motto is grape by grape because you, you benefit from protecting the highest level of excellence in there. And we only want so the best grapes. So that was a supreme early lesson. It, by, it, by doing that. So the showcats give you grapes, you make these, you vint these grapes, what happens? I mean, who, who tastes them, who sees them? That's obviously some kind of launch. So uh, Robert Parker and Robert Parker rated the first vintage very well. And he, he wrote a note. This that, is these that lots kind. that from the showcat grapes from the first, after I bottled it, he okay. reviewed it, my very first vintage, and gave me a very good score. And we we kept going through, and every couple of years, he'd come out and taste the wines. But taking a step back, you know, my story, one of the important parts of this story happened about 15 miles from here, a gentleman by the name of Eric Epstein. So we'd been making wine. And all of a sudden, we were broke. Uh, Victoria and I had $750,000 in credit card debt. We'd cashed in our 401ks. Victoria was your partner. Wasn't, and is my the, partner. Is still your partner at Bevin. Partner. We were never married. Ex-wife. Ex-fiance. Ex-fiance, um, whatever. And she's a wonderful lady. We were on a Zoom today talking about the, the business, and we still are, are the caretakers of Bevin Sellers, which is so incredibly important to me. But we were broke. And Eric Epstein came out to Napa, and, and Gary Varnachuk had said, hey, if you're going out to Napa, you should go taste with Russell Bevin. And I'd never met Gary, but Gary had been given. You know, a, Gary's a dear friend of mine. I, I, I super dear. I go ahead. Did not, but beyond what you would think, Gary. Gary said, "Hey, you want to go taste with Russell Bevan?" And so he came in and he said, "So you've got to be blowing up right now. These wines are so great." And we tried all these barrel samples with them, and so we we got done. We're like, "No, we're we're talking about skipping the next vintage because." Liquidity-wise, we can't cover what our cash flow needs are, and we don't want to sell any piece of the business. And he said, look, what do you need? And I said, we need about $44,000 to cover bottles, corks, and, and labels, and then we could make the next vintage. And he says, I don't give anybody money, but I support in people I believe in and great entrepreneurs, and I think you guys have something special. He says, you find a way to fly out to New Jersey. You can stay with me and I'll invite my friends over to try your barrel samples and maybe you can sell enough wine to cover it. So we're like, okay, we're in. We literally used my mom's credit card in miles to fly to New York. Eric picks us up and we get to his house and he has all of his friends there. He had pre-taken one of our order forms and filled them out for every one of his guests. Ah. And he went around like a pit bull demanding all they needed was their credit card number and, and the, the, the billing zip. And he had all the wines shipped to his office and he made sure we got $54,000 worth of sales. Jesus. And I think Bevan Sellers' most consistent wine is always the EE or double right. E. Right, so you have a bottling called EE. And that's which for is Eric Epstein. For Eric Epstein. <clears throat> now, who was Eric? He was just kind of a wine aficionado, oh, collector, hedge lover. Fund, hedge fund but manager a wine who guy? loved wine, yes. And he loved Gary, and <clears throat> Gary said, you know. You need to go meet this guy. So 
what was great is I didn't tell him I was going to name a wine after him, one of those wines, because he loves Cabernet Franc. So I named the wine after him and I pour it for Robert Parker. And the Parker Reviews came out on Christmas Eve that year. And he gave the wine 98 points. Jesus. And it was my first 98 pointer. And he said, this is a new winemaker people need to follow. If you love California Cabernet, I know his trajectory in Russell Bevan's going to be something special. And this is back when fax paper was still on the round wheels and it would curl up. It was like gray or something. We, we, we sold out of everything in that vintage in 24 hours after that review. It was a little over 1,800 cases. And from that point on, things never slowed down. The business was always healthy. But we wouldn't have made that, uh, that vintage of EE if Eric hadn't have had us out and done it. So uh, we were right outside of Paramus. And, and he, is, he is, to this day, a dear friend. But little things like that have allowed Bevan Sellers in, in my winemaking career to, to exist. And That's a great story. Um, so that's EE. So going backwards a little in making those wines, I mean, who were, weren't there people that were either influencers to you or mentors, like stylistically or whatever, like to make that wine and to get Parker's attention, somebody had to sort of light you up it, as far as, you know, cause you tasted a lot. Who, who was it? I mean, could you cite any specific it, people? It, it, absolutely. Um, Greg LaFollette, who was the first Flowers great guy. winemaker at Flowers and everything, he, I think he's regarded as the greatest chemist in, in Napa. The people at UC Davis still reference him as really? the most crackerjack chemist. And he, he's the, the person who, to this day, when I'm just beating stuff up in my mind and I wake up in the middle of the night, I'll text Greg. And by the time I wake up, he's already sent me an answer. And more confirmation at this point in time than anything else. But anytime I ever needed something, he was there every step of the way. But, you know, going to the flip side, Philip Tony taught me about respecting the site and having faith in the vineyard. And, I mean, Philip is half mountain goat, and he's this wonderful man who, who wants to make wine with European responsibility to it. And he, he would always lecture me while tasting his wines. He says, I, I don't need to worry about the flavors. I don't need to worry about the aromatics. I, I am responsible for sanitation at my winery. I'm responsible for being the caretaker of the wines, making sure they're topped, they're sulfured, making them in a responsible manner with either native yeasts or yeasts that are going to do the job properly. A great winemaker is a great caretaker of what Mother Nature gave you. So Philip was the biggest influence. Because I know you're a sanitation Philip, nut. I, I, I Philip love clean. was that influence. And, and we would barrel taste with him, and his wife, Begita, would go around and hose the barrels off the second we were done. And, and that was a huge impact. I believe wineries shouldn't smell like a winery. A winery should smell more like a whiskey or bourbon production facility where you smell nothing but the wood. Because if you're smelling wine, that means there's wine someplace and bacteria and mold and stuff grow on wine. You want something it's that romantic, smells but inert. It's not good. It, it, and, and 
You go into a winery where there's drips all over the barrels, horrific. We scrub our barrels every three weeks with proxy bicarbonate and citric acid. All right, you got to calm down. I didn't mean mean to set you off. I mean, we get the point, right? I mean, five, six examples are good. We don't need like 12. But obviously, listen, you walk the walk. So doing that is is very important in all of that. what, what amazes me is you really had no formal wine training. So you meet a guy like Philip Tony, and he talks about sanitation and all of that, and you get it and you embrace it, and that becomes an important part of, you know, how you make your wines. Huge, huge. You know, I, I mean, let me just show you this. I don't know where I put it, but I have a chart of Wine Spectator Top 100 Wines, and... You have about, I don't know, 12, 15, 18. Petrus has 11 or 12. I mean, that's pretty good company, I, I, right? You know, I'm, I'm going to, to disparage myself a little bit in that. So, you know, uh, a baseball I analytics wanna... geek recently said, are you aware you have 200 wines scored over 97 points? And I was like, I had no idea. But because I love making so many different wines from different vineyards. I make so many small skews. It's easy to get a high total. So when I say, oh yeah, I've got more 100 point wines than Screaming Eagle. I've got more 100 point wines than XYZ, which is something I wouldn't say. But if I did, it'd be easy to say, well, yeah, you make so many wines, you better. Um, right. right, but that's that's not a given. So I, th- this is a controversial subject and you commented on it too. And it's it's about wine ratings. And wine ratings really fell in the old days to two, three, four guys. I mean, Parker can make something. And there's an argument about the Parkerization of wine that he pushed people to a certain style. Um, and I, Do you I, think I'm gonna he say, influenced that style? And I'll directly ask you, did you play to that style? Like, were you making wines that you knew he liked because you wanted to get a good rating? We didn't talk about this in the car. So don't jump across the table and punch me. Okay. Um, poop. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 did Robert Parker like a style of wines? Absolutely. If if you read everything he wrote, his first great love was Chateauneuf de Pop. Great Chateauneuf de Pop is going to be 16% alcohol because if you don't get Grenache ripen up, it's hard as nails. So did he like wines that were voluptuous and High concentrated? Alcohol, wasn't afraid. Of Absolutely. That. But d- don't don't poo-poo high alcohol. Yes, I make high alcohol wine. I'm not. I'm more interested in your take than what I think. And so if you make wines that are in balance, but that's a given. But high alcohol isn't always going to come across as alcoholic, especially if your winery is clean and you have low volatile acidity. VA, volatile acidity, is the, the thing that burns your nose like nail polish remover. If you have an immaculately clean facility, I pointed at my wife because she's the one who cleans behind me every day, you, you end up with very low VAs, which diminishes the impact of alcohol because most high alcohol wines have high volatile acidity. We don't. So we can have wines that I'm not going to say the numbers because people will go nuts, but we have wines that are, that, 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 that are good date night nights, but date night wines, cause they're, they're, they're going to help you get your giddy up. But, <laughs> but the VAs on them are low enough to where they're never going to come across as alcoholic. So yes, 
Parker promoted wines that were luxurious and decadent and wonderful to drink. And a lot of people went for that style. Um, and, and most of them missed. And, and so people- Missed in doing it right? Missed in doing it right because they got high VAs. They're, they over-extracted. Right. That's to, what got the bad raps. Absolutely. Right. So the term Parkerization is for all of the monkeys that attempted and missed, not for the people who did it the right way. And so Parkerization is a bad term. What Robert Parker did was push people for excellence. There was just a lot of people who tried for excellence who didn't have the game to create it. So I'm curious because I know you admire him and I've drank a lot of it. Tony, where does he fit in? He sort of made, I wouldn't say restrained, but he, he, he made a wine that Parker would love, but not, he made it right. right? Well, yeah, but and obviously that's what you're doing. But Phillips Wines, if you look at his site on the eastern side of Spring Mountain, surrounded by trees, he wasn't in a site that was ever going to create really high alcohol wines unless he did super aggressive farming. He had a, a protected afternoon sun built in, so he wasn't going to get the raisining. And his row orientation and such was that he was going to pick late and it still wasn't going to be real high alcohol. So you got that European sensibility because of the site in, in that condition as much as you did what Philip wanted. Remember, he made the 69 Chapelet, the greatest Cabernet in the history of California. Every critic I've ever written read has given that wine 100 points, the only wine I know of. And that wine was fourth leaf fruit from Pritchard Hill, and it, it, it was ripe and absolutely fabulous. I didn't realize that that wine was so uh, revered. That um, that's Philip has two magnums buried under his house to this day. You got to go visit him. Um, that segues me to a point that you and I talked about, and it's you know Napa may have this rap for this parkerization, which I think you eloquently sort of you know dismissed a little that there are bad winemakers that made these you know, crappy wines, but he was going for a certain style. So Napa was doing a lot of things right. They were doing a lot of things wrong, possibly, and, you know, doing that. Um, talk to me about, because you're embedded in Napa, talk to me about the future, you know, of Napa. Is Napa going in the <clears throat> right direction? You know, do you feel that way? I mean, I'm weary about it because of certain things, but, you know, you and I talked about about this a little and there's some very specific things that you know are on your mind well i i, I recently turned 58 and i i does heidi know that i i, <laughs> I hit it from her as long as possible um <laughs> i i i think i i i no longer care what people say as much so i speak my mind assertively and you know, if you look at Napa Valley for Cabernet, maybe 30% of the dirt in California in, in Napa Valley should be planted to Cabernet. Huge chunks of it should be planted to Merlot, Zinfandel, Syrah, other varietals. And Napa is just now starting to come to grips with, with global warming and how they have to adjust for global warming, whether that's putting up shade cloth, whether it's, it's denuding and stripping leaves that provide cover for the grapes early and then adding shade cloth after so you can protect it from the, the winds and sun. 
changing your row orientation, changing your canopy management. Most of, of Napa hasn't even started to address the right way to farm in the new growing environment, which, which global warming has a huge impact. The obvious question is why? I mean, you just gravitate towards the money grape, cab, you just do what you have to to get, get it in the bottle? Absolutely. I mean, cab, cab is king. I mean, that's the wrong play, right? Well, it, it's not if you're not looking- not the long-term play. Well, if you're a small farmer and you own 10 acres and you want to have cash flow, if Syrah's the right varietal or, or Petit Syrah or Zinfandel for your site, but you can only sell that for 6000 a ton and you can sell mediocre cab for 12000 a ton, you owe it to your kids' retirement and their college funds to, to grow Cabernet. So a lot of it is still monetarily driven because consumers demand Cabernet. They're not demanding Syrah in Zinfandel, in Merlot, in other varietals yet. So I can't blame so many of these people for right. planting cab. But, but is there a generation of winemaker, winemakers or is there a change where let's start doing that? Or no. Or the, the transition is no. not really happening? No. It, nobody's well, going to be the person to start that trend unless they're financially stable enough to do it and make a stand. If, if Bill Harlan went up to Calistoga and, and bought 50 acres and started to plant everything right and set that standard and, and Corey, his winemaker, who's incredibly gifted, made a couple hundred point wines, maybe then Calistoga would start doing that and other people would embrace it. But until somebody has the financial capacity to do it and somebody demonstrates excellence and creates demand, people are going to continue to plant Cabernet. So where do you fit on that? Because you make, you've been described as making intense wines, concentrated wines, energetic, opulent. Um, they are approachable. I'll give you that. That's why you get the ratings. Um, you mentioned it. I know you love the word decadent. Um, I mean, is there a time and a place to get away from that model and start making the other wines? It... it I was so happy when you tried my Chardonnay and you said, yep, there's a little funk to it. So, in a good way. Yes. Heidi and I love Eatine Sanzé's Pouligny Monarché. We love the reduction that that wine has. We love the textures of that wine. We made this wine with a third stainless steel to get that reduction, to get that cabbage and, and that pheromone quality. I love that nuzzling up to my wife and you smell those pheromones. The Chardonnay has that pheromone-like quality like a lot of great white burgundy does. And now I'm in a position to make esoteric wines like that to prove a point and do that because I'm I'm now to the point where financially it's viable. So we're, we're doing that. We're going to taste a, a Pinot later while we're having supper that it's from a, an emerging area that I wanted to go work with. Um, if you look at Chase Sellers, uh, Katie Simpson, uh, the owner of Chase, I begged her to let me be her winemaker because her family owns the Hain Vineyard. It's a hundred year old Zinfandel. Is that the Hain Turley? Same a as absolutely. Uh, uh, right. Turley gets half of the vineyard. We get the other half. And I begged her for years. I would have made her wine for free just so I could have been the current caretaker of these ancient vines and have the privilege to make wines from, from, these wine vines that when you look at them, they're cracked in the middle and, and you see huge holes in them. 
Only the outer half an inch of these ancient vines are alive. Everything else is hollow and dead. And you can walk through it and literally grab a handful of dead wood right out from the middle of it. And, and the privilege it is to work with that. And I hounded her to let me be her winemaker. I, I, I'm now in a position to do all of these things, making an extended age Syrah from a vineyard that, that's completely rocky and, and difficult to farm. And now I'm pushing that envelope but I, I wasn't financially able to do that in the past. Right. Now you have the resources, the clout, the expertise. I used to have the bank too, but uh, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, they're reopened. They, oh, boy. My, I my, about, my, my line I of credit is back that. and open as of this morning. But yeah. I swear, I, <laughs> I thought I saw a story on CNBC and you were online at the bank, but I wasn't sure. It may have been my friend Scott Rosen. He looked like he did. Um, all right, Russell, we have to take a quick break so that we can embed our sponsors and our underwriters. When we come back, I want to talk to you specifically about the wines, the vineyards, the cellars, practices, and all that. So we're talking to Russell Bevin. Bevins. Russell is um, one of the top and as you could see, the most interesting winemakers in California. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Okay, we're back. We're back with uh, Russell Bevins. Um, Russell, let's get into your stuff. Um, we all know that the best wines are made in the vineyard. Um, so I want to talk to you because you, I want to talk to you a little about how you have, you know, your business set up and how you do, you know, your vineyard partners and, you know, what you demand of them. So let's talk about your farming practices and let's talk about your vineyard partners. You have a very specific handle on where the good wines are and where you want to be. And a lot of that points to Oakville. Um, but talk to me about um, all the different vineyards. You own vineyards. You recently sold them. I mean, go anywhere with that, but try to cover everything. Well, look, let's just talk about your first comment. Excellence comes from vineyards. And going back to Napa Valley, if if... If you're a corporate farmer and you're farming the same way, 
you always made mediocrity. And that is now being magnified more and more. And let's take 2023 as an example. We've had all of these atmospheric rivers coming through Napa. We've had three times our normal rainfall. It's wet. We have trees falling over everywhere. So let's look at a vintage like this. You have huge amount of water in the ground. The first thing Napa, the best Cabernet sites have going for them is great drainage. You need pre-verasion, early season water deprivation and early season water deprivation forces the vine to say, okay, I'm a little stressed this year. I need to have thicker skins to protect my seeds and pulp so I can procreate because I'm stressed. If, if there's too much water, too much nutrition, they have no stress. And so they're, they're, they're not going to put their energy into making flavorful grapes. It's going to go into making bigger root systems, thicker trunks, more foliage. So you can have the, the photosynthetic horsepower to go deeper roots in all of those things. And so this year, there's so much water, we're going to have to find a way to stress our vines and eat up all those carbohydrates and all that moisture. So this is a year where if you drive through Napa and people farm and they're disking and they're tilling everything early, they're, they're doing a disservice to their vineyard because what they should be doing is mowing everything so the grasses don't die because this is a year where you're going to want the weeds to go crazy because as the weeds go crazy, they're going to suck water out. And if you go by a vineyard where the, you, you see the whole trunk and it's all neatly pruned, they've made a mistake because you're going to want the suckers, the little things that grow from the bottom of the vine, you're going to want them to grow and go crazy because they're going to suck vigor and, and energy and nutrients away. The canopy should be allowed to go huge. It should look like a chia pet. Um, but, but everybody is going to prune as they normally do. They're going to hedge as they normally do. They're going to disc as they normally do. This is a vintage where they have to look at focusing the vine on becoming reproductive. And when there's so much water and nutrition, it's very difficult to do. And, and things like that are the game changers. The, the farmers who look at making the most minute specific changes to guarantee quality. And that's something that you just don't see that much. So going back to your point, excellence comes from the vineyard. Mother nature gives you the initial site. So in Oakville, if you go to the Eastern side, you've got all that red, beautiful dirt that cascades down into tension, screaming Eagle and starts up at, at Oakville Ranch and Saunders in Dalavale. And it's this beautiful wedge of red dirt and it's all got fabulous drainage. Then you need to adapt it to the vintage. Then you need to adapt the vintage in the growing season to what's happening with global warming and getting all those things right is tough. And, and that's why we're, we're facing the challenges we are, but it, it's about that site. So global warming affects what? Planting, oh. temperature, picking? Uh, uh, all I those mean, things, you, but you, most you, importantly, and this is where I'm mystified at, at what a lot of the farmers in the Valley are doing is, we now have fires every year, and that's because the devil winds that used to come in October are now coming in August and September. So when they used to come in October, we had more moisture in the air, potentially rain. Are these devil winds? The devil winds that come from the and Central what's, Valley. What's the impact of them? What do they do? So 
it'll be 100 degrees and you get winds that have zero humidity coming from the east. In the east is the morning side where people will strip more leaves because you don't have as much sunshine in the afternoon. That's the morning side. And so we now have to protect against the devil winds. And there's a couple of ways you can do it. You can put shade cloth and windbreaks up. You can use overhead sprinklers. You can use misters. Like if you go into a bar in Arizona, we have a couple clients that are putting misters that don't use a lot of water, but the misters will drop the fruit temperature 15 degrees, but shade cloth, airflow, and water are required to protect your grapes during these heat waves costly and labor intensive it's not labor intensive it's costly when you put in the infrastructure but we're talking maybe six thousand dollars an acre and then after that it's the water and of course water is a big thing in california but right now we go through 19 was incredibly wet 23 is incredibly wet we had three years of drought in between so right now it's it's water management and one of the challenges california has is We no longer have any additional reservoirs or any more places to put all of our excess water in these heavy wet years to to protect the drought years because we now have a cycle of huge rainfall, drought, 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 huge rainfall, and we need to put that infrastructure together to support water, have water to support us in vintages when we are dry so we can have misters and sprinklers so we can protect our crops. Is 23, I mean, the rain's been crazy. Is this going to be one of the wettest vintages in recent memory? One of the wettest ever. Ever. And that's why most people are going to have grapes the size of golf balls. They're, 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 if they're not prepared for it and not farming for it, it's going to be a weak, diluted vintage. And right now, people have to start thinking about what am I going to do to make sure that, that I can refocus my vines from development to reproductive. Right. And that's all happening now. You have to be thinking about it this very second. So you make smaller lot wines, right? You have a whole bunch of vineyard partners. Um, I guess it's more than luck, but you've made relationships and have some plots. And, you know, we talked about Oakville. I mean, how, how does that happen? I mean, it's just. I plead a lot. I mean, you talked about the Hain Vineyard, which was not a success, but obviously you set your sights on something and, you know, you want to be there. There's that. And then what do you demand of your vineyard partners? You you know, we talked a little about organics, biodynamic, you know, all of that stuff, sustainability, how you define it. How do you go about that in the field? Well, I, I won't work with a vineyard if I can't control the farming. Um, okay. I, I, I have to have canopy Is management. Is that less often than not? Most people say, okay, you're paying uh, uh, me, at, do what you want. And I then offer them contracts where I'm <laughs> buying all of the fruit from that acre okay. so they're protected. If, if my farming decisions cause them to have all of their fruit ruined, they still get paid. That's only happened once where I really, really boo-booed. But right now we're doing everything. So I'm taking on the risk because I can't make the style of wine I want to make if I don't have things like pre-verasian UV penetration into the grapes. So when the grapes go from green to red, that's called verasian. When the grapes are still green, the sun can get into them and break down a compound called pyrazines, which give wines a vegetative uh, bell pepper-like flavor. 
And so you have to pull enough leaves so the sun can actually get on the grapes at that point in time. But now with global warming and all the heat and extra winds, you then have to protect those grapes after verasion. And so now we're putting up shade cloth on both sides of the canopy. And by getting rid of the vegetative flavors early, I can pick earlier if a fire starts, if a heat wave comes, because I don't have to worry about the wines being vegetative. I'm getting my my fruit and plum and cherry flavors developing at an earlier stage and not having to compete with the pyrazines and some of these off-putting flavors and aromatics. So a lot of that's in Oakville. Why does Oakville have that wow factor? Oakville's the dirt. Is it it the soil? Is it the exposure? Is it all the little subtle things you talked about? Well, I'm I'm not going to get in trouble today because I've gotten in trouble too many times. So here's Oakville. You've got the eastern side that has these red soils and rocky soils. Then you go to the the west side where you've got Tokalon, totally different loam soil profile. You've got McDonald. You've got Dieter. You've got all of the fabulous vineyards on the other side. The wines are completely different. But Oakville has two of the the best soil profiles in the valley, but very different. It's south enough to where you get great airflow from the Carneros region. So air comes through. It splits around two hills in in Yauntville, and all of a sudden you get airflow to the west, airflow to the east. So they both get great airflow. And so you've got great dirt with good airflow, and it just makes Oakville magic. Um, I want to talk to you about Beckstoffer. He has all these vineyards. And do you work with Dr. Crane? I work with, we're going to drink a Dr. Crane later. Thank you. What I want to talk to you about is you've had these legendary, you have these legendary vineyards where a lot of people have made wines, you know, back to the Mondavis and all that. You get in there and... I don't know if you take a different approach, but you look at these great famous vineyards and what do you do with them? Okay, so... I mean, do you go in and say, I know what everyone's uh, done, here's what I have to do because of why? Okay, a little bit of this is going to be my ego. I'm just going to throw that out on the table. When you the finally oper- got to the... When, 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 when Andy Beckstoffer called me and said Dr. Crane was available, I went and sat down with him. And people have to understand about Andy Beckstoffer. He understands 100% that he is the caretaker of special pieces of dirt. His farming teams are excellent. They do exactly what you want. So doing a good job. Uh, they're doing an awesome okay. job. Um Andy then will do whatever you want, but you're going to pay the price and have it done. And for me, going into Dr. Crane, when I sat down with him, he's like, Dr. Crane, and he literally opened up the, the latest wine wine advocate. And he's like, look at all these 100-point wines from Dr. Crane. And, and I, I, I was like, and that's why I want to be there. I want to go in there to something that I can use my farming practices in my winemaking style. So that's what I want to talk about because you have a history of people doing Dr. Crane. What are you going to do? Oh, kick their butt. (laughs) I mean, is it a lot of the things we discussed? Canopy or pick late, you know, whatever. Not not picking late, 
picking about the same time as everybody else, but different winery techniques, pressing my wines sweet, uh, pruning the vineyard differently than everybody else, okay. doing more leaf pulling and things like that. But taking Dr. Crane was, was me taking off the gloves and saying, okay, I've never worked with a vineyard where I'm working with a lot of other great winemakers. And let me be completely straight. I love and respect some of the winemakers in Dr. Crane so much. It was, it was my chance to, to, to tussle with my friends and, I think we've done a good job. So wait, and, is, and, is, and, do you have a Dr. Crane in the bottle yet or not? Yeah, yet? we have several. Oh, okay. So wait, you said we're tasting. We're going to taste the 19 today. Okay. So it's been a few years. Um, yeah, they, 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 they've, been, uh, they've been treated very fairly by the critics. Okay. Well, I think, you know, when you put Dr. Crane in front, it's kind of built in. All right. So we talked a little about farming practices. Um, you know, your attention to detail, your specificity, you know, all that stuff is crazy. I mean, you know where you want to be, you know what you want to do. We both agree that it all happens in the field. Let's talk about seller practices. You know, now you've busted your ass to make these incredible, to tend these vineyards, pull in these incredible grapes. You don't want to F them up in the cellar. So talk to me about, you know, seller philosophy and you know, now that you have the grapes. I mean, about 40 minutes ago, we talked about literally plucking one grape at a time. And, and you know, cellar practices are common sense. You're Once the grapes are at the winery, you're now a caretaker. It's your responsibility to protect the excellence that came from the vineyard. And you can do 200% new oak. You can do 50% new oak. You can rack every six months, take the wine out of barrel, put it into tank, There's put it all back to barrel, options. all those things. Yeah. At that point in time, your responsibility is sanitation, common sense, and then understanding what your wine is supposed to be in bottle in doing things between the, the time it's in barrel into when it goes into bottle so you can magnify the potential of what came into the winery as it came in as grapes. And if you have to rack a wine because it's getting reductive, a little stinky, you do it. If it needs to be racked because it's hard and tannic and you need to basically you decant in it, you, you, you can rack it, get air to it and, and open it up. Um, once it's at the winery, it needs to be common sense, and there has to be somebody smart enough at the top of the organization who demands that everything is paid attention to and it's common sense. Um, there's no magic once wine's in the winery. There, you just have to have great attention to detail and not let something bad happen. And you need to taste the wines all the time to see if you need to make a course correction because they are getting a little stinky. They need a little extra sulfur. They need some air. So you have to, to rack maybe one or two barrels out of a lot to soften the tannins. That's when it comes down to hard work and diligence. So the intervention is really paying attention to what the grapes need, not to just add deeper color or acids or... Yeah. We don't do stuff. Right. I, 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 well, I won't say I've never added acid. I've done it a couple times. Each time I've tasted those wines, they taste like sweet tarts to me, and I hate it. We, we didn't work. We, it, it didn't work well it, enough. It, it did qualitatively because we were in compromised vintages, and, and stuff happened. But 
those wines are never going to be special to me because I did intervene chemically, but we don't use enzymes. We don't use fermentation tannins. We don't do any of that stuff. We're very aggressive during fermentation. We, we foot stomp the grapes before they go into the, into the, into the vessel. We will use almost four pounds per ton of grapes of wood. Wait, all the wines are foot stomped? <clears throat> All the wines that, that we can foot stomp, we foot stomp. We foot stomp as Absolutely. much as you can. Okay. But before they, once they're done being destemmed, um, somebody is standing in that bin foot stomping. Um, Crazy. That, that sounds like okay. Portugal. So 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 people in the people in the in the cheap seats behind us just raise their hands, and I'm going to say it sounds so romantic. The grapes come in at 45 degrees, and then once they get up to your, so your feet are numb after three minutes and, and you think they're going to get soft, but oh no, because they're so hard, because they're so cold. Then it gets up to your mid-calf and then it's like running in the beach and you hear the sucking noise every time. I, I, I mean, you're doing cardio at an elevated level. And if you're not going fast enough, everybody is, is barking at you. And, and we do a few things to help. We sanitize your feet before you get in. We spray them down with alcohol. We rub it all down. You can't have toe, toenail polish on. And then whoever's stomping is responsible for the music. So, so if you want to listen to flash dance, you can listen to flash dance. If you want to listen to ACDC thunder, you can do thunderstruck. But you have to keep going. It's a miserable job after just, five minutes. You took all the romance it, it, and it, fun it, out of it. It, 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 it. You see pictures and it's like, wow, it's, that's cool. But you really, I've got videos of my wife. Down, man. And the ones I show are the ones when she first gets in. I don't show the ones two hours later where, where, where she looks like she's been in the ring with Mike Tyson. It, it's. Uh... <laughs> all right. So, one last thing on the cellar uh, treatment of oak. You like to work with new oak. Mix depends on uh, the wine, no, the vintage, no, the plot. Nope. Is there a philosophy nope. there? Yep. Um, I I I use virtually a hundred percent new wood, but I'm doing that because I want each vintage to get a fresh, clean barrel. I don't want the it's impact more sanitation of a, than the effect of what a new wood would. Do. I want the last thing to touch the inside of that barrel well, before my you, wine to be what fired. What if that barrel was yours? You knew how nope. meticulous no, you were. Uh, you won't. No, nope. really, not not a chance. Um, and and people people reuse barrels, and I respect it. And you can steam barrels, you can sanitize them, you can can ozone them. I'm just not comfortable doing that. I want new, clean, and fresh. So I'll use stainless steel sometimes to mitigate the new oak. I won't use a used barrel. I, I shower four times a day, Sam. I like clean. I'm surprised you didn't get up in the middle of the interview. <laughs> I mean, we're here almost an hour. Um, all right, so let's let's talk about some of the wines. Um, let's stay in the Bevan realm, and then you know I want to talk about adversity. And maybe, you know, pick a consulting partner or two. Um, we talked about EE, which was your friend Eric Epstein. You named a wine after him. Cabernet and Cabernet Franc. I always show. So uh, the, your wheelhouse is Cab, Merlot, Cab Franc, or. Absolutely. So. I, so And a lot of your well-recognized wines are the vineyard designates, right? Yes. So, you know, walk me through some of those. I mean, there's more than a big handful well, of those. Well, you know, it, it all starts and ends with two, 
We've got the Tench Vineyard in, in Oakville that uh, Margaret and Rem Tench are, uh, I'm their son, Charles Godfather. It's this magical piece of dirt where when you start at the front, it looks like Chateauneuf de Pop. You've got all these rocks and, and there's very little soil. Then you go to the, the middle blocks and the middle blocks have red soil with, with virtually no rocks. Then we go to, to a little bit of clay worked in, and then we go to dark clay on the far side. And the, the natural complexity that comes with the Tench Vineyard is amazing. So we, we start with super intense, hard tannic Cabernet up front, and we end up with incredibly complex, refined Cabernet Franc in the back. And so I've got a full palette of colors to, to put a wine together with, with Tench. Then right across the street is my my little baby tin box. And um, Jeannie Phillips, who founded Screaming Eagle, sold Screaming Eagle. And she bought four acres across the street from Screaming Eagle. There's a little metal house that's, that's a that's studio apartment. Box. And it's called Tin Box. Wow. And when she called me and asked me if I'd be interested to work with it, I thought I was getting pranked. <laughs> I, it, it's back when you, you still had... You back when you still had cassettes in your voicemail and I listened to it like three times and we played phone tag and we agreed to meet at Trevignier and I, I was walking in there with a bag full of my wines to show her and I knew all my friends were going to jump out and scream surprise. I was being pranked at a high level, but <laughs> Jeannie Phillips was there and Screaming Eagle was amazing and is iconic because of what she did and she's she's one of my heroes. Every time we get together, I want to hug her and, and start talking about all the wonderful things that have happened in our life. She'll have none of that. We start by talking about the first thing on her list, and she doesn't go to, to fun and pleasure until you've discussed all of the business. Wow. She was successful in everything she ever did because of that, and to this day, that there's times when I'll get off track and I'm like, you know, Jeannie wouldn't be very happy with you right now. Right. And, and she, she gave Jeannie me the grapes the from that vineyard. And then in 2011, a vintage where very few great wines were made in Napa, Robert Parker gave us our first hundred point wine in 2011 so first from that point vineyard was arguably what people perceive as the worst Napa vintage. Yes. You got a hundred point in 2011. We did. And that was tin box or no? it was tin box. Jesus. And when we were picking the grapes that day, Jeannie Phillips was like, I wouldn't be picking grapes today because it was misting. Right. And I was like, they taste perfect. Jeannie. She's like, yes, but it's misting. And, and we picked them and, and those grapes were magical the day they showed up at the winery. And to this day, that wine is absolutely fabulous. We only made 150 cases of it. And, I, I, I no longer can taste that wine and be a fair judge because it's so emotional to me because of my attachment to her and it being our first vintage. And it, it's, it's just not fair. I, I don't even enjoy tasting it in front of other people because it's, it's so emotional for it's me. It's nice to hear about Jeannie. You know, it's nice to hear that, you know, she's still out there and everything. Um, oh, I, my goodness. She calls me when she thinks the grapes are getting ripe. Jeannie doesn't yeah. mess around. Right. You got to listen. You can't push back. And she's probably almost always right. So Tench, E.E., -E, Tin Box. Tin Box. We have a wine called Sugarloaf that is Franken Merlot. 
Just Frank and Merlot? Just Frank and Merlot. So that's like, what is that, a right bank blender or something? So I, I love Ausson, Cheval Blanc, Clenet, all those great you, you micro producers. Inspirations? I can't afford them anymore, Sam. <laughs> they're, 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 they're a thousand bucks on first tranche. And so I, I went out searching for a site that I could make great Merlot and Franc on. And it's above the Cori in Southern Napa. So it's a cooler region, which Merlot and Franc likes. It's on a rock pile. So you have great natural stress. And that wine's always incredibly dense, but you get the round, beautifully, it, it, the wines have hips. They've got fabulous hips. They're round and seductive, and that's what great Merlot should be. Yeah. Heidi and I were in Vegas the other day, and we had a bottle of 09 Angelou, and we just sat and we we pushed the meal away and just, just drank the 09 Angelou because it was so fabulous. No food was going to be as amazing as that right. 09 Angelou was at that point in time. So a good transition from that is, you know, those are legendary red wines. You light up when you make your Sauvignon Blanc. And your Sauvignon Blanc has gotten some great notices too. It, it, I mean, what what pushed you into that? I mean, did a vineyard become available, or it was something you always wanted to do? My my friend Peter Young owned the Dry Stack Vineyard, and he had a rare clone of uh, Italian clone of Sauvignon Blanc. And that's a good clone. He, Italian clone. He he asked me if I would make Sauvignon Blanc with him, and we did. We had no clue what we were doing. We were two when monkeys. Was this? Uh, 2004 and five. Wow. And, and I believe you, you didn't have a clue. And I, I, I knew how to make red wines cause I'd read every book. Sauvignon Blanc, like Gewürztraminer can be a pain in the butt. And we didn't find it, didn't filter it. The wine looked ganky. It looked cloudy. People complained. It was delicious. And so to this day, people complain about my Sauvignon Blanc cause it's cloudy. I don't care. Don't buy it. Don't drink it. We sell it out in two weeks. It's rock star fabulous, but it looks ganky. Sometimes ganky's good, Sam. I'm you're you're preaching to the choir. Um, that market is so used to that, you know, like the cake bread, Sauvignon Blancs, and all that. So filtering and finding would change the profile. Yeah, no, we 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 go flowrider style. We ride dirty on like our Sauvignon Blanc. That. And then you've made. Great Wines in Sonoma, which I know is a passion of yours. Well, it it's where I'm from, and I'll always be a bit of an outlier in Napa because I'm a Santa Rosa boy. And since, since Santa Rosa, we don't look a little bit down our nose at Santa Rosa. It, it's 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 Santa Rosa, and I, I, I love my family's hometown. But um, I had to I had to make Pinots that were Cabernet drinker Pinots, and that they're what does that mean? Big, huge. Huge, okay, huge. Okay. I, 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 I mean, my pinots are because a lot of burgundies are not that. You it, felt it, the profile you had to make. I it, and thank you, Sam. Okay, we're not burgundy people. Uh, oh, you're welcome. A, 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 and I know when I'm Antonio Galoni is my friend. We spend time together, tasting, talking, and drinking. I no longer pour him my pinots because I, I, I. He has such a great palate for Barolo. Uh, champagne, white has, burgundy. I think he has a legit palate. L Understanding absolutely. big pinots, restrained, burgundy. But, you know, I think he's a good guide for that. And, and he, he texted the other day that he wants to try the, the pinots again. And I don't make anything that, I, I don't care that it's not burgundian. I don't care that it's varietal. I don't either. I just and want you to I know I think that. that 
A lot of the critics want you to be varietally correct. I don't care about varietally correct. I want to be absolute pure sex appeal with my Pinot, and I want it to be yummy. So what goes into making that sexy, yummy? I mean, what what's the formula? There? Farming in sight. Okay. And, and then I use some really crazy oak on it that gives you these fabulous nuanced qualities and is crazy oak something different than the norm i i, I use specific forests okay that a couple of the coopers that you make know have me. a an effect on and and so we we use more bertrange bertrange forest has a different oak for flavor profile we use some barrels that have five year uh aging on them and they're aged only in the shade never in the sun um so that gives us a very specific flavor profile we're using oak that magnifies the yummy factor and sam if if people ever forget that great wine should be yummy they're making a mistake I love intellectual wines, but I love yummy. So I couldn't agree with you more. I think when somebody drinks a wine and they either use the word yummy or delicious, you're on the right track. All that other BS stuff, pencil shaving, saddle, you know, people have to really feel it. And yummy is a feel. So I agree with you. Um, and I wasn't knocking big wines at all. Um, so you've been making the Pinots for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Since... Is that an area... Sonoma, an area you look to grow, or you're happy with how you're set up there? I can't grow there because I don't have the, the the number of hours I need to properly manage vineyards that are that far away. It's what makes Pinot down in Santa Rita, which is Santa Barbara County, so difficult for me because I can't get down there enough to, to give the vineyards my full attention. Fortunately, the farmers down there now know what I want. They respect it and they, they carry it out, but I end up FaceTiming with them a lot. So right. they'll walk through the roads right. and I'll FaceTime and it's almost like being there, but it, it's not. Right. And quality and, is important. And I don't want to, to overextend. Which is, you keep things in check. That and way. so let me I, give you my day. Wait, wait, wait. I want, give me, no, go ahead. Okay. Give me so, your day. For the record, I gave him the Russell wants to talk look just there. Um, I, <laughs> they, well, no, I, they, this, I, this this potentially could be the most interesting part of the interview. So, I so, so, last year harvest was seventy eight days. Once Is that extraordinarily long for harvest, it's about about normal. Okay, okay, you have but, to put perspective for the listener. And, and okay. so. Once the first grapes are picked, I taste that fermentation every day until it's pressed to barrel, or if it's a white wine, until it's done with Malik. So I worked 78 straight days last year. I, I don't get a day off. Every facility I make wine at, I have a team leader or an assistant winemaker. So, so wait, can you clear something up? These are your consulting wineries. Consulting too, right? wineries, but I make not, Bevin at multiple no, know, facilities we, too. We didn't get into the fact that you consult at multiple vineyards and make, you know, home run wine. So this 78 days encompasses Bevin, everybody, your consulting wine, everybody. And, and it's a great thing to add is every wine gets the same attention to detail. It doesn't matter if it's a, a $40 wine for a client or a $285 wine for me, 
I taste every fermentation every day. So the, the teams know when I'm going to show up. So I get up during harvest, I go to the gym. I'll go look at, at vineyards because it's cool in the morning. And then after I've done those things, then the teams have had enough time to do morning pump overs, punch downs, pulse airs, whatever they're doing to the wine. And when they're done with the first treatments, they pull a, a, a sample in a red solo cup and we, we reuse our red solo cup. So we write on a permanent marker what vineyard and fermentation tank it comes out of. And then I sit down with my team and we taste every wine and every day it's like, oh, this doesn't have enough extraction. So today we want to do uh, a delistage where we drain all the juice out of the tank, let the skins just sit on top of each other, get a little warm, pull some of that extra concentration out, and then after an hour, we'll pump the juice back in, or it needs more air. So we'll do a pulse air and blow giant bubbles of air through it so we, we get rid of the reduction. So every wine, every day, is evaluated for what it needs to achieve its highest level of excellence. And so I go from one place to the next place and everywhere I've got my team. And at the heart of harvest last year, it was a little over 200 fermentations going. Jesus. So it, 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 it's a day. And my wife may disagree with me, but I, I, I would say by day 70 or so, I, it, it, it's so exciting. And every winery where I go, my team there is so excited to show me what's happened to the wines overnight. It's like, oh my God, our, our extra pulse there got rid of all that funk and wait till you taste the fruit today. And the teams are so excited that the energy just thrives and, and you live on it for that whole stretch. And there's never a day that there's not something exciting and dynamic and new and, and eye-opening. And, and it's 78 days. It's it's a haul. It sounds impossible, but that's but, what keeps you juiced. But you 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 go through it. And, and traffic is now the biggest challenge in Napa because traffic is so crazy. Like literal traffic? Like on literal the road, traffic on the road. Slows things down? Slows things down, but... So you can't get around... I try road. to work it where I, I compete against the traffic, but every day you taste every wine. And I can't add more clients and make more wines and still do that and still have the level of focus and attention to calls, detail. Though, right? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate, but I'm, I'm happy with who I have and the family we have right now. I may begin dropping people, not because of the wines or anything else, but Time. I, 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 that, and I, I, I want to reduce the amount of stress I have. So I reduce the amount of stress my wife has when she has to deal with me. So it's well, one way or another, you figure that out. So while we're talking about your wife, you started a winery, wine label, called Adversity with Heidi, who's sitting here with us. And Adversity, and you'll talk about it, explains really what the label is. You want to deal with vines and climates and vineyards that have more adverse conditions. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely no. Um, yes. Perfect. So, so, yes. If you ask me why the brand is named Adversity, I will tell you it's because all of the vineyards we started with are sites that that are stressed. They're they're either on terraces, they're dry farmed. Something 
created a high level of adversity, which gives you more flavorful grapes. But if you ask my wife, she would tell you that the adversity potentially comes from our relationship and me early on, and that it adversity may 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 have had something to do with our early dating and uh, engagement period. All right, I think we're both right. <laughs> <laughs> so, an interesting thing, and I want to get into this for a minute. I want you to talk about, and don't spend forever, how you met Heidi, and I want you to quickly talk about your first date. Because this is like shit of legend, okay? This isn't like you know we went to a bar. And we so I have no idea where you heard this her. story, Sam. But but yes, I, I heard this. But this is a good story. So this is worth talking about. Okay. So first, you know, everybody's sitting here going, "Hey, Russell's a cool guy, you know, personable, smart, and all that." You know, he met Heidi. He probably met her bar. Tell everybody how you met Heidi. We met on Bumble, so. which is what. Uh, 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 a, a dating, dating app, site. Okay. Da- a dating app that empowers women because women have to swipe and accept the man before they get any communications from the man. And I know this is a podcast and it's unfortunate because people should get to see exactly how how glorious I am in public. But yeah, my, yeah. My, my wife swiped right on me before she knew I made wine. So I, 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 I'm saying it wasn't because I was a winemaker. It's because th- this moneymaker still has a little bit of game. Heidi, how drunk were you? <laughs> Go ahead. All right. So you meet on Bumble, so, a site. So we, you know, we, we meet on certainly Bumble. Certainly not uncommon. And in... We communicated all the time for about four months, but we didn't get to meet. I was busy. It was harvest. She came to Napa with a, with her twin and her other sister and got to taste my wines with one of my colleagues, but I wasn't available that day. And so we, we'd been communicating long enough for her to be comfortable enough for me to schedule a spa day at the Claremont Hotel in Berkeley, which is the big, beautiful hotel up on the hillside next to the UC Berkeley campus. And so I... I I told her, look, you're going to be safe. I'll book us a suite with two rooms. There'll be a lock on your door, but we'll have a spa day. It'll be relaxing. And and so we get there. And during lunch, I opened a bottle of vintage Krug, a bottle of vintage Biacart, Simone, Cuvée, Vincent. I forget the, the one, but... Uh, we did that. We did a bottle of EE. We did a bottle of Tench Cabernet. So we had four bottles of wine for lunch and, and this may have to be edited out, but she, no editing. she, she is, she's twice told me you Bill Cosme me with wine. I, 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 I don't know that the rest of that date was fair. So we, we, we didn't end up at the gym or the spa. We ended up back in our room. And, and I'm a huge Gonzaga Bulldog. I'm alum. I'm a Zag. And Gonzaga was playing St. Mary's just a few miles away that night. Right. I had a ticket. I had access to a second one if, if in fact, we, we were going to go to the game. We, we were way too intoxicated to walk down the hallway, let, 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 let alone get to the arena. So we're there, and all of a sudden, this this beautiful lady that I'm watching the game with starts talking about, oh well, they're they're not cutting the 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 through and, and driving the hole hard enough. And I'm like, okay, you know a little bit about hoops. She says, oh yeah, and I I 
played, I was a full ride scholarship basketball player in college. I was like, okay, didn't know that. So, so she's breaking down the game and we're having fun and we're continuing to drink. And we may or may not have napped through parts of the second half after we, we had the fifth bottle in our room. And, and when I ordered her lunch, the Claremont is such an elegant, fabulous place, but they believe in small plates. So she got a cheese plate. And I think there may have been six crackers and five pieces of cheese. It was a bite or two. And, and I've never asked her this, but I'd assume showing up at a first date wearing a uh, uh, it, it was no super revealing outfit, but I'm thinking she didn't eat a lot before. She didn't stop and get a couple Big Macs right before she showed up for the date. So without a lot of food in her tummy and all kinds of wine in her, we watched the game and we had this wonderful day. We took a, an extended nap and then went down and had supper. We, we may have been too intoxicated to make it through dessert. So dessert was delivered back up to the room. And I, I had a busy day that next day, so I let her sleep the rest of the night and went back to Napa after I'd sobered up a bit. And, and I'd left a tank top in the room and I, I deleted our Bumble match on the drive back because I upgraded her to Facebook. So I, I, I'm like, Bumble, some dating app. Now I want you to see more of Russell. Welcome to <laughs> Facebook stage. And she didn't realize that I had upgraded us to Facebook. And I think she may have been a tad upset that, that I deleted our Bumble match after getting her, well, very intoxicated. All right, so three things. Is that accurate, Heidi? Not at all. Okay. We don't have time to get into it, but I may do another show on that. That's number one. Number two, what year are we talking about? Um, we were married August 1st uh, during COVID a couple Claremont years ago. Uh, it was a ways back. It was, I was about to say February 5th, 2017. All right. Third question is at the winery, you're making a limited amount of wines. What are you making there? What, what I look up adversity. And adversity, we're making uh, uh, an extended age Chardonnay, five Cabernets, and a, uh, uh, excuse me, an extended age Syrah, five Cabernets, and a, uh, a Chardonnay. All right, I'm going to tell people where to go. And we're drinking the Papas right now. Okay. Um, and all of our labels, the art is hand-painted by who? concrete, an artist, Christian Hetzel in, in Stuttgart, Beautiful. Germany. Beautiful. And he paints with concrete and a trawl. And we named this wine Papa's after our fathers. My, my father was quite the rogue as a young man. Her father was a deacon of the church. And they're both incredibly colorful men. And we, we picked the most colorful piece of art Christian had to represent our fathers. And this is our reserve Cabernet. That's awesome. All right. So lastly... You are a prolific consultant without going through everybody you consult. I mean, how many wineries are you working with? And, you know, any story or winery you, know, you, you just want to throw out there? You know, all of them are special. Um, I'm with every one of them for qualitative reasons. Everybody agrees on the, the level of excellence from we need. I get the Haines story. And, and What's so, important to you is where you want to be. And so it, at this point in time, we're only working with people we care about that understand excellence and, and want to work with special sites. So places like Elise, Perus still, Perus, Lerner, uh, 
Chase, Napajack, I keep seeing the Herba. name Josh Peoples come up. Who is that? Josh is one of the, uh, the, he was the person who founded Chateau Boswell and Jacqueline back in the day. And then he helped launch and create the Attics brand. And he was the guy who put together the deal to purchase the Elise winery from the previous owners and then take that and, and turn it into the project it is today, which we have some reserve wines called Institution. And right. Josh has been the driving force behind all of that. Right. Um, I was on Elise's mailing list probably 20 years ago. Very funny. All right. So we're going to end with this. Early on in your career, you said you thought you'd have a shot at being one of the big boys on the block. Do you remember saying that? I don't, but I'm sure it's true. After sitting here with you, it certainly makes a lot of sense. Um, you probably had big cojones then. You have them now. Um, are you one of those big boys? Does it even matter? You know... The people that are in my wine tasting group in Napa are some of the greatest winemakers in Napa. We never drink our own wines when we're together. We drink other stuff. And knowing that I have a seat at the table with Sam Kaplan and Graham McDonald and Kirk Vengi and That's the, 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 the people in my group, and we have this wonderful level of respect, that, that, that lets me know that I'm where I'm, I'm supposed to be. As you should be. All right, we do a thing on the show called The Wine List. We've done over 250 of these. We ask our guests the same five questions. We post them, um, and they're different questions. So I'm going to ask you them, and be spontaneous. Don't dwell on them. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? What's in the fridge? What are you tasting? Let's assume you're tasting your clients' wines and you're always tasting your wines. What are the pleasures beyond that? So there's been so many great vintages of Burgundy and Bordeaux lately that Heidi and I have gone deep into the last few vintages of Bordeaux and white Burgundy. But like 28 to 2018, 19. Bordeaux has a trilogy. It's a, it's a great, a great one. 1920 is great. Burgundy's been good. But, so you've been but, drinking... Heidi and I have been to, to Germany for two weeks, twice in the last Riesling. four years. We love great Riesling. We Keller? don't, we, so Klaus Peter Keller, we went to his house and his wife cooked me bolognese, my favorite dish. That, and, don't, don't I know that? And, and, I had to talk you off the ledge on that. And, and, and we sat with Klaus Peter Keller for hours drinking wines and it, it was, I had giddy stars in my eyes the whole time. I'm seated across from the greatest white winemaker in the world, and I I was so starstruck. I was just so. I agree with you. It so was the awesome. answer to that question is you're drinking Burgundies, Bordeaux, Keller. You love Riesling, you know, from current to past vintages back to but, 17, 18, 19, 20. But and champagne. Beyond. We we've gone on a huge Gigal Lala kick lately. We, we we had the 2010 Le Turc, and it was the greatest red wine I've had in years, and I kept sipping it. And we were with our friends, Kevin Wood, my, my our friend Kevin and Whitney Woods, and I kept sipping it, and I went into the bathroom with my glass for 10 minutes so I could be alone with the wine. Is, is I, Le Turc I, I your didn't, favorite of the La Landone and with, the other With one? maturity, Le Turc is young La Moulinas, but... 
I, I, I've done this a few times. I did it with the 89 Oprion once uh, where I, I- What, go in the bathroom alone? I needed to be away from other people while drinking okay. the wine just to fully, I didn't want anybody talking right. to me. I well, just wanted know, to be alone with the wine and me. You know where the bathroom is here. Um, <laughs> all right, so I didn't mention, but we post your answers because people okay. love to hear. That was a long answer, yeah. sorry. That's a great answer. All right, second answer, second question is the goofiest one. It's Russell Bevan's favorite wine and food pairing. Not what you think is great, not what you'd recommend, but what you like. What's like, and obviously you don't eat it every week, every month, but, but what's like, ooh, ah, this wine with this food is awesome. Krug, Brut Rosé, and popcorn. I love that, champagne and popcorn. But you know what? I get that answer every now and then, but never rosé. So that's a first. I like the fruitiness. And you have to know how to make popcorn. Most people don't know how to make popcorn. So what do they do? They burn it? Or they, they, no, they just make it. They don't make, make it. So we... Wait, we, we're, we're connoisseurs. We make okay. Jiffy Pop. So we, we pop our kernels. So you start by turning your oven on to 325. Wait, convection. you make it in the oven? Wait, wait, wait. Okay, so, so you pop your corn and you put it in a huge aluminum or stainless steel bowl. You, you use three cubes of butter and you feather the butter in each time you, you pop your next batch of popcorn. And you get all the butter in, and it's huge amounts of butter, but then you put it in the oven for 15 minutes, convection at 325, and it sucks all of the moisture and swampiness out of the popcorn. So you put the butter on, the kernels get a little scrotal, they get a little smaller, but then you bake it, all the moisture goes out, so each bite is a burst of buttery goodness. Himalayan pink salt, so, and, and they explode across the palate. So it is I'm, crunchy I, I and I gotta hot, follow Sam. up with you, and you gotta write this down for me, but I'm gonna look around the room. Has anybody ever done this or heard of that? I mean, what? All right, so uh, rosé, champagne, and popcorn. Crude rosé. I love Krug Bia Cart. It, it's the most consistent, excellent bubble for under 100 bucks. A little cheaper than the Krug, I was just yes. gonna say. All right. So third question is favorite wine restaurant and or bar. So let's talk about in the area that you live. I know my answer. You lived in Yountville. You're now in Calistoga. So you know 29 up and down. So give me anything there and anything in your travels I'll take. Just and these are people that have the list, that have the vibe, that have the knowledge, that's fun to go into. And if you mention anyone and don't, mentioned someone else you didn't leave anyone out we're not ranking them these are just places you're talking about. i only have because i don't want you to get back and say russell how come you didn't mention me go ahead one no questions asked it was hennepin lake liquors in minnesota in minnesota phil college so this is a wine bar wine not a wine bar i don't know that it's legal for him to pour wine in the shop it, it, it actually burned down. It, it got looted and destroyed in the riots uh, a couple of years ago in Minnesota when they went through their rough stretch. Phil would let you, if you were one of his group, come in and buy a bottle of wine. He'd give you a bit of a discount and you'd sit there and drink it with he and his cronies and everybody else. And we would buy Harlan. We would buy whatever great oh, wines he had, all he, that stuff? he had in the stacks right next to his office. He had his stuff. And... We would go in there Friday nights and drink the greatest wines. We had our own little box of Riedel stems there. And all of the geeks that were there 
we're we're all in. We'd go in on bottles, and if if everybody had a bit of a buzz, eight hundred bucks for the the new Harlan right off the list. Boom, we were drinking the new Harlan, and it was absolutely awesome. Hennepin Lake Liquors, Uptown Minneapolis. So that may play into the fourth question, and the fourth question is, what is Russell Bevan's favorite all time wine? And I have to stop for a second. When I structured the question initially. My interest was, Russell, what was like the rarest, most expensive wine you ever drank? I don't give a crap about that. What I give a crap about is, Russell, what's that wine that you drank that was life-changing, awakening, changed the way you thought about wine? And that may have very well been in a hennepin. Is there a wine or two that's an all-time wine that was just so influential, you know, to this day? To Absolutely. Um I, I remember where I was sitting. I remember opening it. It was a very young Bordeaux at the time. It was the 88 Chateau Palmer, a tannic vintage. Chateau Palmer uses a little more Merlot. And the 88 Chateau Palmer, um, I had a steak in front of me. And it was it was one of those things where the wine and the food was perfect. And I remember just sitting and drinking my glass, filling my glass again, the bottle was empty and I'd only taken one bite of my steak. And it was the first time I'd had a Bordeaux and granted it was young Bordeaux, but it, it was so perfect on that day. And I'm, I'm now a huge, I didn't understand this back then. That's the answer to the question. That's, you know, that's the wine. So two things. Were you with anyone that meant anything? And where was this? I was with Victoria and we were in our apartment in the Marquette Plaza in downtown Minneapolis. Okay. And we bought the bottle at the nickel sale where you buy one, you get the second one for a nickel at Haskell's in Minneapolis. If you knew now then, would you buy 20? I, I, <laughs> I, I, I've avoided tasting the wine the last couple of years because I don't want to diminish my memory of its perfection that day. I can tell you that nobody's ever answered that question with an 88 Palmer, so that's, that's a good one. <laughs> Um, last question and dig deep on this because this may not be your wheelhouse, but you're a wine guy. Recommend to me wines, 15, 20, 22 bucks. Recommend a red or a white. You could recommend a region like Muscadet in the Loire is cheap white. And I ask this because my kids are in their late 20s, early 30s. They can't show up at a dinner $15 supermarket shit wine. They can't afford $40. Um, as a gift, they want a wow. So how do you do that at $20, $22? What, I'm curious your thought process. Because it's it's not unfair to say you're a luxury winemaker. So now I'm asking you to talk to me on this now. And, and people ask me all the time to make value-oriented recommendations. I... I don't drink those wines and I don't follow that market enough. And here's what I do know. You elitist. It, it, only in a couple ways. I'm joking. And when I go to seminars to, to learn about winemaking, I attend every seminar I can when Gallo rolls out their PhDs. And Gallo's got it going. The, 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 the people at Gallo, they hire the best and the brightest and most of the quality research done in in the united states is done at a few universities 
but Gallo sponsors so much of it and they do so much themselves. The, the people at Gallo do an amazing job. So when people ask me if I want to spend 40 bucks and it's a wine you haven't made, I tell them you go find a vineyard designate or a, an AVA designate from Gallo and they're going to magnify the bang for the buck that you're going to get. It, and other people might say, oh, well, it's Gallo. Never dismiss Gallo. So I think that's a fair point. I think Gallo is in a place better than people think they are. I think all their resources and, you know, they've acquired brands and they're very much into it. So I guess the answer is look at Gallo, look at their portfolio and don't discount them, right? They make some terrific wines. I will take Absolutely. that as a very fair answer. All right, Russell, you did an admirable job. Pretty good. I'll give you like an A minus. Um, all right. So we got to wind down here. We end the show with a segment called the weekly wine sip. Every week we taste a different wine. It's a perfect time for a winemaker to talk about their wines. So we have a red wine in front of us. I want you to tell me about vintage, you know, blend. A little background, and then we're going to do a, uh, a physical assessment of it. Okay. Um, we're drinking the 2019 Adversity Cellars Papa's Cabernet. It came from... So Papa's is spelled how? P-A-P-A-S? Yes. Okay. We named it after our fathers. Okay. Uh, and it it is almost all Cabernet with a little bit of Merlot, but... What are you talking like? Four six percent? Uh, no, about fifteen percent. Okay. And legally, you you have to be seventy five percent to be varietal. So we had plenty of wiggle room. But uh, it came from the Melanson Vineyard, the Herba Vineyard, the Sage Ridge Vineyard, and Sugarloaf. Um, Melanson's Pritchard Hill. Nice. Sage is the hilltop next to Pritchard Hill. Nice. Uh, Sugarloaf is down South Valley on top of where the Mer excuse me, Meritage Resort is, and Herba's on Atlas Peak. And we blended this, and it's so funny that people say, oh, did you take your four favorite barrels? Well, we tried that, and our four favorite barrels together wasn't a very good wine. It, it was kind of like four lead guitar players playing all over each other. Right. It didn't have harmony. They're good, but it didn't work. So we, we put it together again and again and again. And one of the things we didn't talk about today, Sam, which is hugely important, is how you blend wines and the process with which you blend wines and the impact on there. Because if there's any artistry in wine, so it's, it's that blending that. aspect. Talk to me about blending. You did it with this, and well, obviously you do it with all the other wines. So the first time we blended Adversity, it was, I believe, 64 barrels. We have our team pull a 375 sample bottle from every barrel. We lay them out in front of us, and then we score every barrel based on what's in that bottle from one to five on aromatics, textures, and flavors. And then we, we look at all of our favorite barrels from that block, and we'll taste those together, which sometimes, like I said earlier, can be a train wreck, next to the composite of all of the barrels together. And we start saying, okay, if we're going to do a Melanson Vineyard Vineyard Designate, what's the highest level of excellence? And I, I use that word a lot. I'm sorry. But what's the highest level of excellence we can take with this wine? And if this is our favorite barrel, what would we add to it to make it better? Do we need more texture? 
Do we want to add a kiss of Merlot? Do we need more color and tannins? Do we need some Petit Verdot? Does it need a kiss of floral aromatics? Is it Cabernet Franc? And we put all of it together piece by piece like a jigsaw puzzle, and then we make that blend. And Heidi sits there, literally, our countertop full of graduated cylinders and bottles, and I, I'll do a readout, okay? 10 mLs of this, 20 mLs of this, five mLs of this, and she puts it together, we taste it next to the previous version and see if we like it. And we build on that excellence, and then when we get the highest level of quality, we'll try to add an extra barrel or two so we can have enough of it to make it viable. You don't just wanna end up right. with 75 cases, which we've done many times, but we build upon excellence to try to create the highest level of quality we can and then make as much as we possibly can. And the first time there's ever a question, could this be a compromise? Boom, you're done. And you don't make that next step. Beautiful. All right. So let's, so it's a, let's do an, a, an evaluation. It's a deep, dark brooding wine, right, Russell? Well, it looks brooding, Sam. But it, I don't say that in a but, negative but, way. No, 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 no. I'm saying you're right. It looks brooding, but it's not on the tongue. So we didn't get there it, yet. Okay, let's just sorry. do All right. color assessment. So let's go nose next. Okay. So Put it up to the it's schnoz. Very dark. I suck at descriptors. You tell me what you get. At okay. So to me, instantly you get a, and, and people aren't used to tasting and smelling berries in a large quantities. When, when you're eating plums, you take a bite out of a plum and you smell the plum. When you're tasting stone fruit, you get the same thing. To me, this is really great blackberry and then cherry. But in the nose, there's a, a, a ferrous quality, almost iron. So, so you, you get a little bit of the red dirt that, that we get at Herba, and, and you get that minerality and a kiss of meatiness from it. But you, you start with pure fruit, you get a little bit of floral, you get a little bit of mocha, you get a little bit of iron. So, mouthfeel. It's, it's a more than a medium plus. I mean, it's a mouthfuling, unctuous in a good way. It's just enough baby oil on your hand to rub your lover's belly. It's that smooth and silky, I've Sam. heard you say that before. I was hoping you'd say it. And that's a very positive description. You know, when you think about it in your mouth, you're like a baby oil belly and all that. I mean, it, it's perfect. All right. So now let's throw it over the tongue. And let's talk about the palate and see if the palate replicates the nose or there's additional things that we see. Well, I love how, first of all, there's lift in the front third of the palate. And one of the things I've been hyper aware so of- So the front third of the palate is the first attack? It For me, it, okay, this is so crazy. And I've, I've dove down this rabbit hole lately is, is I wear a CPAP. I have a high arch and I didn't realize my brother's a dentist. I worked in the dental field. Uh, Victoria's a dental years. hygienist. The shape and contour of people's mouths are so different. And there was a few people whose palates I loved when they described aromatics. When they described textures, I was like, what is this monkey thinking? And, and then I would talk to them and stuff and, and I'd ask them, how high is your arch? And, and how wide is your mouth? And 
palatal impact, I'm, I'm just starting to respect people, how they feel so different. I have a high arch. So when I feel something really high up, I know it's the skin tannins, those long, luxurious phenolic compounds that hit up there because I've now done trials using different types of tannins to see where they attack my mouth just, just to increase my own knowledge base. And this wine hits me up front and then it's so silky. It's velvet ball bearings. They cascade down the palate, and then it just leaves you with this very refined, long, just sexy finish. But what are that? That's perfect. What are some of the things? It's dark fruits. Does the cherry pop it, in? It, it, you it, mentioned uh, things in the palate. I mean, what pops? I mean, on the <clears throat> nose, what pops back in in the palate? It, it's the fruit, and then you get that little kiss of of bittersweet chocolate on yep. the finish that that I think is Beautiful. really complimentary. Um, and, and then you're just left with this impression of great texture. And it's, it's, I feel bad. I'm talking about my own wine like this. I don't like to promote my, my own wines, but okay. you, 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 you get this satisfying. It, it's pleasurable. It, it, it's worthy of a smile. It's delicious. It's, it's delicious. So that's the 2019 Adversity Papas. Yes, sir. And is it available? No. Okay. So screw you all. We're enjoying it. <laughs> but Russell makes other wines, and we'll let you know about that. All right, Russell, we got to wrap up. We got to get out of here. We got to eat some food before we pass out. I saw that filet you got out there to I grill. I got it sitting there. So I got to do a quick uh, wrap up, and then I want to get some info from you. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. The reason we ask you to subscribe is when you subscribe, Russell, the podcast shows right up. There's Russell in bed next to you, and you could listen to him. All right. So that's why you should subscribe. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review. Follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby, on Twitter at BenRuby. I know that's confusing, but we use the hashtag The Great Nation to find us on both. But we are on Facebook at The Great Nation. As I mentioned, we'll post Russell's wine list, all your great recommendations on our social media. Um, I will give you information on the weekly wine sip, the adversity papas. I will talk about the um, um, uh, Chardonnay, and probably I'll make a list of all the wines we drank tonight, which will be fun. Um, so, Russell, if we want to find more information about, and there's a lot of things going on here. There's Bevan Sellers, there's adversity, there's you. Uh, consulting partners, break it down. Where should people go? People are like, this is the greatest guy. How do I get involved with him? Where do we go? I, I, I think you just go to uh, adversitysellers.com or bevinsellers.com. Okay. That'll take you to our Instagram. Instagram then will take you to any of the, the people I make wine with. So what's all of the my Instagram partners. handle? Uh, adversity Sellers. And are you at Bevin Sellers? Bevin? Or I'm sure Bevan Sellers has at Bevan yeah, Sellers. Yeah, I'll double check that. Um, all right, so I'll, I'll, you know, clear all that up. 
All right, Russell, we got to wrap it up. I want to thank our guest, Russell Bevins. Thank you for this history-making podcast at the Ben Ruby household with a live audience, with all your wines. And we haven't even begun yet, all right? Thank you to our engineer, Armin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.